The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Well, I'm very happy to welcome John Johnson now to the Liberating Arts podcast. And so I wanna just give you a wonderful introduction. John Johnson is the executive director of the Albertus Magnus Institute, a nonprofit foundation dedicated to the promotion of Catholic higher education and the host of the Magnus podcast. He has a philosophy degree from St. Mary's College of California, Moraga, California, and a master's degree in theology from the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, Berkeley, California, where his studies focused on the beatific epistemology of St. Thomas Aquinas. He has spoken at Catholic retreats and events across the country and lives in California with his wife and four children. Welcome, John. Thank you. One on the way. Well, congratulations. Yes. You might hear a few of them screaming in the background over the course of this interview. So apologies in advance. Thank you for having me here. This is a great honor. And it is uh, pretty early in the morning for me in California here. So pardon that as well, but it's really good to be here. Excellent. And we'll be happy to have any, um, you know, background contributions as may come our way. You will get them. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So starting off, um, I was eager to speak with you and to just kind of spread the news about the Albertus Magnus Institute, uh, because I'm not sure how many of our viewers know about the Albertus Magnus Institute, but I think many, many more people need to know about it. So I wanted to start out by asking you, what is the Institute and what is its mission? Thank you. Uh, AMI's mission really begins with a passion. And this passion is to ransom the captives of a broken system. So as you know, as many people know who have experienced something called liberal arts, uh, these, these things have been really in the last few decades um, counterfeited and are being impostered by uh, this, this counterfeit going by the same name. So uh, the liberal arts, as, as your work demonstrates, should be authentically liberating, right? And so the mission of AMI begins with this passion to liberate the liberal arts. Uh, because because that's, what, that's what they are, right? And all too often, the liberal arts so branded are not doing that. They're actually doing the opposite and really burdening students with a lifetime of indentured servitude through debt uh, and really not liberating minds, not rendering people employable or able to think very well or have very decent conversations. And so the Albertus Magnus Institute exists to promote the liberal arts as, as they should be promoted and, and shine a light on the places that are really doing an authentic good job with the liberal arts and, uh, and then offer a program of study for those who, who can't attend something like a brick and mortar school. 
Well, so, so that's a really striking um, kind of image of the liberal arts being counterfeited. Um, and, and it sounds like what you're saying is that what perhaps the vast majority of our students are getting is a counterfeit version of the liberal arts. Uh, I wondered if you could say a little more about that because that's a pretty bold claim. It is, yeah. Um, if you if you talk to a young person, for instance, who's considering where to go to college and, and they, they say, well, I'm going to go study the liberal arts. What's the first thing that comes to mind, right? Impracticality, unemployability. Uh, and as you know, from, from yourself being a student of the liberal arts, um, you know, what can you do with the real liberal arts? What can you, well, you, as a liberated human person, you can do anything. You can do whatever you want. And so I think part of this work is to rebrand uh, the liberal arts in their most authentic sense. Uh, they've always been the way through which a person is, is liberated uh, and then free to pursue uh, the truth in the light of wonder. Uh, and sadly, I think in many institutions that are calling themselves liberal arts institutions, there's something very diametrically opposed to that going on at great expense to students. Interesting. So you talk about the idea of rebranding, um, but it sounds to me like there's a much deeper critique that you have here, because if it were mainly an issue of rebranding, then that suggests that much of what's going on in terms of liberal arts or what's being called the liberal arts is fine, but it's just not being branded in the right way to help people understand it. But as I understand it, your critique is much deeper than that. Um, so you don't necessarily need to name any names of particular higher education institutions, but if you were saying maybe typical university or typical, typical liberal arts college, what is it that they're doing that makes the liberal arts counterfeit compared to what it is you're seeking to bring? I think to put it uh, concisely, the counterfeit liberal arts is in the business of commodifying the human person. And manipulating the human person, indoctrinating the human person, reducing the human person to something other than human, mm -hmm. uh, an object fit for use. So that's anything but liberating. And we see this in the extremes in, in the, uh, you know, the, the college of woke that sort of dominates the liberal arts ethos today in many ways. Uh, and, you know, would you want to hire somebody that is, that is uh, trained to think or to unthink in, in such a way? Probably not. Would you want to have a conversation with somebody like this? Probably not. And so there's really something destructive happening. And in the meantime, the students that are incurring this meat grinder of mental manipulation are being saddled with thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in debt. And as far as the employability, right? Everybody's waking up to this fact that there's just no return on investment for these things anymore. So we really look at the college system as it is right now as a bubble that's going to pop very soon. I think many people are waking up to this fact. And so we want to help be one of the, uh, the needles that pops the bubble and offer a solvent alternative and a more human alternative. Okay, so I heard two, two key critiques there. So one is this idea that maybe in kind of in your typical college or university, uh, you see students getting more manipulated or indoctrinated 
um, into a kind of set way of thinking. This is the right way to think about these issues. And if you think or speak differently, then you are kind of, you know, um, so outside of the mainstream as, as to be problematic. That's one thing. So it's, it's not a kind of a genuine thinking through, but it's a, let me learn the right way to think and present myself. And then the other is the astonishing levels of debt, which as you note, is anything other than liberating. Um, and so then students um, on the analysis that you're giving are not only not being taught to think well, but then being saddled with debt. And the other part of this that keeps coming through is this idea of what it means to be human. Um, that you feel that a lot of our students are not really getting at the core of this idea of what it means to be human. Does that summarize the critique correctly? I think that's that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think the college is in many ways, you know, and as, as many of us know from having been students at them, um, the, uh, there's a lack of respect for the student. And it's sort of a typical thing in grad school, especially, but there's a real fear of the student. That is, this person in front of me can't really actualize me uh, and, and sort of stay pigeonholed in your, special, in your specialty. Uh, and so in many ways, I think students kind of go into these college systems as enemies of the, of the status quo and the... Um, you know, the faculty sort of tries to protect this sort of Gnostic knowledge set uh, and then indoctrinate in a way that makes a student um, manipulatable. Uh, and yeah, and I think it's unhuman. And sorry, I'm actually babbling a lot and uh, <laughs> not at all. I'm making a perfect interview. No. I'll wake up. All right, go ahead. Let's go. All right. You're good. Sorry. So uh, let's, I want to get some into the workings of the Institute itself. Can you tell us um, about how does one become a fellow of the Institute? Because it's that, that's the major, um, that's the way one becomes involved is being a fellow. There are fellows and then there are senior fellows. Yeah, tell yeah, that's good. The difference between them and then how does one become a fellow? Yeah, so AMI really wants to reintroduce the collegiality of college. And so uh, this is a fellowship in the truest sense. So you're not enrolling as an applicant or as a student. Um, and in fact, the bar to entry is pretty low in the sense that the application, as you know, takes about 30 seconds online. And there's two levels of fellowship. There's something called a lifetime fellowship that we automatically provide to anybody who has already graduated from one of the, um, I think, eight or nine schools that we currently endorse as providing authentic liberal education. And then those students are free to take classes at their leisure for the rest of their lives. And then uh, a regular student fellow can come from any academic background or no academic background at all. Um, as you know, we've got people in classes who are, you know, graduated from Ivy League schools uh, or have just high school diplomas of, from all walks of life. And so it's a really beautiful thing to see the cross-pollination there in this really authentic fellowship. And then these fellows are studying under the light of great texts uh, with our faculty, we call senior fellows. And these senior fellows are sort of academics, usually from you know, renowned institutions who are doing good work in publishing, 
some of them are very well known, you know, like the likes of Dr. Anthony Esselin and others. Uh, some of them are not very well known, but are fantastic teachers. And so the fellowship aims to unite these great teachers. I mean, really, I mean, you've been in these classes, right, Angel? I mean, I mean, have you had a good time? You enjoyed yourself? I, I really cannot extol highly enough my experience with the fellowship. So there, in, in that sense, I'm, I'm a biased interviewer. Um, but I wanted to just show folks, you know, my wonderful certificate oh, yeah. of <laughs> fellowship um, in the Alberta's Magnus Institute. So, you know, as you're saying, it's, it's a very simple application online. Um, so I just submitted the application and then, I, you know, I'm a fellow and then I get in the mail this lovely certificate. <laughs> saying, it's, you know, yes, it's kind of it's kind of a um, I don't want to say a joke because it is a very serious and esteemed thing that you will frame and put on your wall. But um, and, and mention on every job interview and resume henceforth. But uh, really, it's it's sort of a poke in the eye at the at the college status quo, right? Where you spend these years and these thousands of dollars going after this carrot on a stick that is the diploma uh, that you get and you check out and that's it. You take the test, you got your sheepskin, and you're done. With AMI, we want to really reverse that order. And so as soon as you're in as a fellow, we send you the sheepskin and you can frame it, you can put it on your wall, you can put it on your resume, uh, you know, you can be introduced as a fellow with the Albertus Magnus Institute. But the point of that is to get that out of the way. We get the, we get the sheepskin out of the way to really say, okay, now it's time for learning for learning's sake. And it's time to do something beautiful that has nothing to do with a transitive reward. So we give you the transitive reward right out the gate. Yeah, you know, and I think it's wonderful because I, I can tell you kind of how I received it when I got it, right? So for me, you know, I've got plenty of degrees, right? I'm a professor. Yep. But when I got that, you know, I was very excited. And the reason I was excited is I took it more as an invitation, yes. an invitation to intellectual community, you know, and with to be able to have the kinds of conversations that I long for. And you might assume that as a professor, I'm having these conversations all the time, but in fact, that is not the case, um, you know? And so to be able to have um, this invitation to this community of fellows who are, as you said, pursuing this for its own sake has been truly beautiful. And the two seminars that I've had the privilege of taking part in have just been excellent. The first one on the history of happiness um, with Professor Deal Hudson. And then now, you know, with um, Professor Anthony Esselin on Dante, you know, the man who has done you right. know, this extraordinary um, translation. So to be able to be in a course studying with people of that caliber um, is unheard of. And I, I think, you know, I, I can't really overemphasize how extraordinary that is, because as you said, it's not, you know, some kind of exclusive application. You don't even charge for this. Can no. you speak more about that? Yeah, um, we really, and this is a gamble, I think, and, and maybe reckless, and many people have accused us of that. Um, but we really want these 
these arts that we're participating in to be offered as freely as they are freeing. And, and when we see this racket that is the modern college education system, we want to really do something uh, diametrically opposed to that and say, well, look what we can do for free. And, and that's not to say it's without cost. It's, it's, it's with, with great cost and great devotion. And there's many, many hours spent and many dollars spent to provide something so good to our fellows. But for the fellows themselves, uh, we don't want to put a price on something that is invaluable. We don't want to charge because really what we're offering and what the fellows are offering to the Institute in return is beyond measure. And so um, we do we do fundraise, we do um, have, I think, sort of a bicameral economic engine. And one of those is just trusting the fellow's generosity and say, hey, we're going to offer this to you uh, pro bono. And if you want to respond with a monthly gift, that's great. If not, no problem. And as you know, you don't get really any um, fundraising spam emails from us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, pretty hands off there. And, and so far, the response has been really, really good. And we really do want to respect our fellows completely. And, and really, you know, I've worked with nonprofits before that have, you know, we've all seen nonprofits before that really the people whom, who they serve are really just dollar figures to them in their eyes, right? And we can never do that. So we have to be we have to be um, totally opposed to commodifying our fellows in a way that stands in stark contrast to the way that the student of the typical university is commodified. Mm. So, so that's one aspect of our economic engine. And I don't want to give away too much of our secret sauce, but the other is, um, you know, involving people who might want to hire some of our fellows as they complete their studies. And there's really two kinds of, um, you know, very successful executives that you, might, that you might consider. And the modern university goes after the sort of executive who wants to give a million dollars to put his name on a building or something like this, right? But what if you could give a million dollars to an institution that would provide uh, graduates that you would actually want to hire that could actually think their way out of a paper bag. And so we invite uh, executives or or successful businessmen, women who want to see the fruit of their labor in a real way, who really want to return on their investment. And then part of what we do in the fellowship, it's not just study. There's so much, uh, as you've seen, right? There's so much extracurricular cross-pollination happening. We've got a virtual campus where people can really get to know each other from all walks of life. Um, They can work with each other. They can promote each other's work. They can hire each other. um, They can maybe even marry each other in certain cases. Uh, And so that's the goal. And, And really we are limited with an online infrastructure, right? There's no beating a brick and mortar institution for the human component. We're doing our best with, um, you know, bleeding edge technology, and sometimes it does bleed, uh, but we are doing our best to really um, intermingle humans in a, in, a, in, a, in a good and fruitful way. And I think as we expand our course offerings, you'll see a lot more of that that has dramatic impact. 
So I know also um, that you have in mind, you, you did have in mind some opportunities for face-to-face -face community. Of course, now with COVID, that is difficult. Yep. But can you say more about what the ideal is? You know, once it's possible to travel again, what did you have in mind in terms of possibilities for face-to-face? -face yeah, so the Institute was founded in, I think, 2018. And then after a year of preparation, we launched to the public on the Feast of St. Albert the Great, November of 2019. And then uh, it had a great start. And then COVID kind of derailed, uh, you know, a lot of everybody's plans, right? And so on the publishing front and on the in-person gathering front, we were, we were really stopped in our tracks for a while and had to regroup, which was fine. Um, but the ideal to answer your question is that the fellowship, the program of study, which can be completed in three years or as little as one year with full-time study, the fellowship terminates uh, in an in-person academic pilgrimage uh, with other fellows that's guided by a senior fellow so um, you can be, you know, studying the, the Republic uh, in Athens. You can be studying the Gospel of John on Patmos in Ephesus. Um, you can be studying, you know, you, I mean, you name your text and you name your location and you name your senior fellow and we do an annual uh, academic pilgrimage. Because like I said, there's no, there's no replacement for the, uh, you know, there's no replacement for the in-person meeting and, and, and that's why even just seeing people in classes, you know, like there's so much administrative work, as you know, that goes along. It's just paper pushing until you see people show up and their faces light up in class. And that's like, as a teacher, you know, that's what makes it all worth it. And, and that's, that's where the real reward is. So we do want to get people together in person with an international academic pilgrimage that will culminate their fellowship. We also want to offer annual, if not quarterly, domestic United States-based uh, symposia featuring senior fellows and fellows. Uh, and, and I mean, everybody's itching for it, right? We all want to get together in person. So we're going to make it happen very soon. Very exciting. Very, very yeah. exciting. I will look forward to that happening as well. Uh, so can you, you've said a little bit about um, the diversity of fellows, but can you maybe kind of flesh out for us um, who are these fellows? Like what, what kind of- That's people? a great question. We're trying to figure out who are you people. Uh, and it's so beautiful to see because when we get, we get applications coming in every day and, and we've got hundreds now uh, since, since the brief time that we've launched. And, um, you know, they're, they really are from all walks of life. Like you're, you're an academic, you know, I see your, your name come through. It's like PhD. I got to look this this person up. Wow. You know, this is great. Um, we have plenty of uh, like Ivy league, I mean, Harvard, Yale graduates, academics, professors. We've also got uh, people with zero college education, um, moms, dads, tradesmen. Um, we've got, you know, at least one truck driver. Um, we've got, there's a guy who, who sells rumble strips for this company who sells rumble strips, right? And, you know, I think the demographic is really split. I would say about 40% of our fellows come from one of our endorsed institutions. Um, and then 60% come from anywhere. We've got international students. There are a number from South America, 
uh, from Africa, from Australia, from Europe, from Great Britain, Canada. Uh, and so we really are seeing a, a vast diversity and trying to further that diversity. I think the more the better, the more that we can gather a large, vast difference of people, uh, the better we are going to be for each other. That's excellent. Yep. Nice. Very nice. All right. So you said about 40% are coming from your endorsed institutions. Can you say more about that? Because I can imagine that those who are listening are going to think, so what are these mysterious endorsed institutions? And you know, what, what is it about them that sets them apart? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think, um, and I got to be careful because I don't want to offend anybody who's, you know, I, I didn't go to my, your endorsed institution. Am I nothing? No, um, no. I think there are very few remaining, like a handful of colleges in the United States that still offer uh, an education that's rooted in, in really the medieval understanding of, of the trivium and the quadrivium. Uh, and then rooted in in the classics, and rooted in in this this, um, well, this varies by method, but really an, an ability to read a great text, and to chew on a great text, and to discuss a great text. Uh, and so, these institutions that we support have very, you know, unique. Well, I shouldn't say very unique. You can't really be very unique. You're you're, you're unique or you're not, right? But anyway, these institutions that we support have their own way of doing the liberal arts, their own flavor. Um, you know, Wyoming Catholic is not Thomas Aquinas College. They're very different sorts of humans that attend these places. And, you know, the, 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 the John Senior method is not the Ron MacArthur method. They're very different methods. But in, in a way, they're, they're cousins, right? Um, so they have, the, they have the, at least pedagogical cousins, right? And they have the same end. And so we, we are looking for the sort of institution that still offers a, a great books, classical education, at least according to their own flavor. And we will relentlessly promote those institutions as an even better alternative than the Albertus Magnus Institute for those who can attend them. And if you can't attend a brick and mortar uh, university, so there's no replacing that if you can do it well then we'll offer an online alternative and we'll poach their faculty in the meantime. So you can at least be studying from the same, from, from a similar faculty, right? <laughs> and the institutions themselves, I'm kind of uh, joking about it, but the institutions themselves have been very, uh, very uh, grateful for, for, you know, and, and accepting of what we're trying to do and how we're trying to promote them. And so back when I could fly, you know, before COVID time, I would go out and, take podcasts with their faculty, promote their institutions, and we will, we will promote them relentlessly. Mm. So these are institutions that are very focused on, as you said, the trivium and the quadrivium, uh, great books centered, great text centered education. Um, so part of what you had said, starting at the beginning, is that, you know, the impression that most people have of the liberal arts is that it is useless, that's impractical. Um, and then part of your own critique is that you don't see the return on investment of the typical um, 
the typical college and university today. Yeah. And so I would be careful. We would have to distinguish between the typical college that calls itself a liberal arts college from something like, you know, one of our endorsed institutions who's actually doing the liberal arts in a way that is liberating. That's right. That's right. And so I just wanted to know, since there is so much pushback against this idea of a great books focused, or, you know, as you said, uh, you know, kind of a focus on the the, the, the medieval model of the university. Um, uh, many people would say, even in your definition of what is authentically liberal, they would still say that that's impractical, that it's elitist, you know, that it doesn't really fit us for what we need right now. Um, and, you know, particularly in this series of podcasts we're doing with the liberating arts, um, you know, we're looking at what is the use of the liberal arts at a time of pandemic and protest? I'm so glad you asked that question. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think there's, there might be two questions there to unpack. Um, the practicality thing. And if you've worked with young people who are maybe considering going to one of these colleges that does a great job of the liberal arts, you know, some, the kid says, I want to go to university of Dallas. Um, I want to go to Thomas Aquinas college. I want to go study philosophy at St. Mary's College. The first reaction that most of their family is going to give them is, what are you going to do with that? Right? You probably heard it yourself. What are you going to do with that? And the answer, as you know, on the other side of it is and should be whatever I want. Because when you can think, you can do whatever you want. There's no conversation you can't have. There's no job you can't get. Um, and, and you're going to enjoy it. You're going to enjoy every bit of it because you're doing something that's an end in itself. You're learning for learning's sake. You're learning to bask in the sunlight of admiratio, of wonder. And that's a good thing. That's better than being somebody else's tool in a cubicle, right? That's better than being a wage slave. And really the liberal arts properly uh, properly, properly understood are, are the, are the, the key, the key out of those chains, the way to, the way to be authentically liberated in a, in a way that, you know, money's easy to make, right? Money's, you know, uh, if you can think you can, you can do it. Um, and there's more important things as well. So, you know, it's like, I always tell these young people, you know, the, the only poor, really poor people that I know, who um, graduated from one of these schools and enjoyed what they were doing there, they, they were, they're wearing religious habits right now. That's uh, the only way to be poor. And I mean, you know, you know the, I, and I think, I think students of the liberal arts are, are really misbranded in that way. You know, um, I, think, I think you can do whatever you want if you have a real education. The second part of your question has something to do with protest. Could you re-ask that? Yeah, please. so I guess I had a number of, of questions in there. Um, so part of the question had to do with the accusation that this kind of education is for elites. Um, and then, you know, particularly in a time where there is so much uproar, everything's been uprooted, we've got protests, we've got pandemic, why would we possibly want to be, I don't know, reading Dante or, you know, kind of taking these seminars and engaging in this this fellowship. It seems so out of touch with the pressing needs of the day. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, first of all, would you consider yourself an elite? 
Well, that's an interesting question. So um, I think if I think about it sociologically, you know, in terms of level of education and income, I wouldn't, I'm definitely not at the top in, in the United States, but I would say that I'm part of a minority when you combine education, level of education and income. So not at the top, but compared to the vast majority of the United States, I, I would say that I'm in the minority. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I would think of, you know, just sociologically, if you were to say, well, what, what kind of education does an elitist have, or does, does one of the elite have, I, I would maybe look toward, you know, the Ivy Leagues or something like that. Um, but I think as far as the protest question goes, uh, you've seen these man on the street videos in your social media feed where somebody goes up to a protester holding a sign with great intensity and says, you know, why are you here? What does this mean? Right. And it's very rare that you get a decent answer to that question. So I think and it's a beautiful thing that we're looking for these causes, right? And then we want to be counter cultural and we recognize that something is wrong with this world we find ourselves in. We want to do something about it. I think that's good. But what the authentic liberal arts education at its best would allow you to do is answer the question of why. That is, be, or, be oriented in and toward a telos of your action or your protest or your mission. Uh, and so much of life is, is, unfortunately, we bounce around from passion to passion and fleeting desire to fleeting desire and never ask why. And so we're never, never able to rest. And, and uh, the word for this sort of rest that's brought about by contemplation, as you know, is is leisure and leisure should be the end of work. It should be the end, end as far as the talos, uh, it, should be, it should be the end of, the, of, of polity. And we've lost this completely. We've lost this completely. So we're, we're largely at war with ourselves and each other because we forgot about ends that are worthy in themselves. And mm -hmm. so I think a liberal arts education in the best sense can re-root us and direct us toward those ends. So you've said some about, um, you know, kind of the relationship you have between the, the core institutions from whom your lifetime fellows come from and, um, and the Institute, you know, you are able to recruit some faculty from there, you get a core of fellows from there. I'm wondering what kind of relationship you could imagine there might be between the Institute and the typical university. So I guess there, I can imagine a couple of options. I could imagine no relationship whatsoever. I could imagine, you know, that you kind of have this, um, what do you say, you know, this, this stealth program of, you know, reclaiming a remnant from, you know, the yep. kind of mainstream and kind of infusing a new kind of life and energy. Um, so I don't know. I, I wondered what some of your thoughts are on what would the ideal relationship be? Well, the ideal relationship is that we destroy them. <laughs> I'm only slightly kidding. Um, okay. No, I, I'm, I'm actually mostly kidding now that I think of it. There's, there's this big question of accreditation, right? Mm -hmm. and, and accreditation is 
in many ways, it's like the MBA, right? And if you ask Elon Musk, if he wants to hire somebody with an MBA, it's like, no, thank you. Um, or at least not necessarily. And accreditation is very similarly losing its cachet very quickly, very quickly. And so the value just isn't there. It's like these institutions are having an increasingly difficult time uh, charging, you know, six figures of debt because uh, they have accreditation, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that, I think that brand, we think that brand is really going out the window. And so um, we want to offer an alternative that is that is proudly unaccredited, uh, and 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 that's not something we're bashful about at all. And that enables us to have liberty over our curriculum. That enables us to offer something that's as free as it is freeing. And so that said, there are many many good things happening at many many institutions, if not every institution. Right. And all it takes is one or two, as you know, one or two great faculty members to get a great education from, mm -hmm. even if there's all kinds of nonsense going around, going on elsewhere in the campus. And that's the caricature of the college campus. It's like there's nonsense happening everywhere, but you can find one or two good professors. You can find a good group of friends and you can really profit from it. You can make the best, best of it. And so we are very happy, very glad to promote anything good about any college institution of any sort. And, and really our aim is, is um, you know, one of them is a grand thing, but to, but to help save the university because the university was originally a very, very good thing. And it was originally a very Catholic thing in the, in the lowercase c sense, right? It was, it was universal, it was holistic, it was integral. And now it's become compartmentalized, uh, segregated, divided, scattered, uh, pigeonholed, you know. Um, and so we want to recapture the idea of a university. And I think the online aspect of it, as much of a deficiency as that is, as far as getting people face to face with one another, it gives us the ability to get fellows into at least a virtual room from everywhere. And really, the, the diversities you've seen in your classes, you can't, you can't beat that as far as the, the cross-pollination factor. So we'll see what happens. But to answer your question, we want to promote anything good about any college. And, and there are many, many good things happening in, in every college. So you said something interesting there about accreditation. Yeah. Right. And so I'm, I'm interested to know, and then you also talked about um, one of your funding sources being business persons who could imagine hiring some of the fellows. Yeah. So do you see a possible future where um, going through something like the Alberta's Magnus Institute, perhaps instead of going to an accredited college or university, becomes a pathway to one's economic future to one's vocation. Yeah, it's a no-brainer uh, because the return on investment is so is so great. I mean, if you if you can really get a, a comprehensive liberal arts education in three years from the best faculty in the world, and it's free, you're next to free. Uh, why not Why not do it? Why would you Why would you spend four years of your life? Um, anywhere else. And I think there are, like I say, there are a few institutions who I would actually recommend that 
I would recommend you to do that because of what's going on there is so is so powerful, so potent. Um, but in many cases, the ROI on the college status quo just isn't there. And these, these graduates are less and less employable, less and less enjoyable, less and less convergent uh, or, or conversant, I should say. Uh, and, so, and so we're offering an alternative that is much more affordable and we hope comparable or better than the rigor uh, and merit of a traditional institution. Hmm. And it's proudly unaccredited. Yes. Yep. So what so far have been your greatest challenges and your greatest joys with the Albertus Magnus Institute? Oh, that's a great question. Um, the greatest challenge uh, has been trying to do something very differently um, and sort of straddle the line between our passion and our mission. And I'll, I'll, it's, a, it's a strange thing, but our passion is this almost guerrilla warfare Countercultural desire to ransom captives of, of a broken system. And we want to fight. Um, our mission is really to liberate the liberal arts and be a great online liberal arts school, place of higher education, if not the greatest. And so it's a strange thing for me, but uh, especially somebody who's more irascible. The hardest thing for, for me personally has been to balance the passion with the mission, okay, in a way that both of those can grow each other. And your second question? The greatest joy so far. The greatest joy always, as, as uh, somebody who helps educate, is, is seeing the, the students, seeing the fellows in class, seeing the conversation, you know, that happens you know, after Anthony Esselin's lecture, for instance, seeing the questions that are asked, seeing this light of wonder in fellows' eyes, you know this as a teacher, right? That's, that's always going to be the greatest joy. And so ultimately, that's, that's what we want to do is, is teach uh, in, 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 in the sense of, of leading uh, leading uh, others to, to this light that we can look at together and share as, as fellows. Excellent. So for my closing question, I wanted to ask you, what is your vision for AMI in the next five years? You oh, don't the whole thing, but just- I gotta, I gotta give away the secret sauce. <laughs> uh, our, our vision is to grow the fellowship exponentially. Our vision is to put more seats in classes. We have a pretty good faculty. I think if you check out our website mm -hmm. at magnusinstitute.org, you can see our faculty and see that we are only poaching the finest faculty. Uh, slightly kidding. Everybody's really happy to be teaching for us. Um, and we've got the faculty, we've got the student fellows ready to go. And so the more we can you know, and I find that a tremendous amount of fellows find out about our work through other fellows. So mm -hmm. word of mouth is great. And we really have to see, you know, in these infant stages, what's our rate of return for the fellows. In other words, you took one class and you came back for a second class. We're very surprised. I think, I think surprised in the sense that it even exceeded our expectations 
how many fellows re-upped after their first round. And so that's going to enable a sort of rapid growth trajectory for us. So grow the fellowship is number one. Uh, publish books. We didn't talk anything about uh, really very much about that, um, but we've got some good books in the pipeline and we're taking a very, as radical as our approach is to the, the school, we have a more radical approach to publishing. We're only interested in publishing books that are being written today, but will possibly still uh, be read in a hundred years. So we're not interested in publish, publishing discount bin, you know, 10 steps to whatever, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of that. Some of it's good, some of it's terrible, but we're only publishing books that are going to hopefully have a place entering into this perennial conversation. So, so growing the publishing and then growing the uh, in-person events, academic pilgrimages and symposia are all part of our five-year plan. And I think we're gonna see on the flip side of this, like I said, there's this college bubble. We're gonna help be the needle. Uh, you're gonna see the college world, I think start to really rapidly implode very, very soon. I think people are just not gonna be willing to um, pay what they're paying, what they're being asked to pay for the return that they're given. Many people are waking up to this now. And really it's beautiful, but many people are waking up to this and opting for a very practical trade. You know, they're becoming plumbers, becoming carpenters. This is a beautiful thing. Uh, and I think it's a matter of time before in, in equally vast numbers, they start to gravitate toward these, um, the classical studies, the liberal arts, the great books, education. I think word's getting out pretty quickly. So when it does, we'll be there. And also launching, you know, a year right before COVID happened, we were really in the right place in the right time um, with an online educational outlet. Because now everybody's doing it, you know, everybody Zooms. Uh, we actually don't even use Zoom in classes. We use something else, but that's a different story. So, so grow the fellowship, publish books, do in-person, and be ready to accept the onrush of interest in you know, you're part of it, I'm part of it, but this, this re-emerging, reawakening interest in great books and liberal education. That is excellent. Well, John Johnson, I thank you so much. For I thank you, Angel. Yes, it's just been a wonderful conversation and thank you for the work that you're doing. And I, I urge anyone who's interested to go and check out the website, which will be in the program notes. Um, and to just really see for yourself what is being offered there. Angel, thank you for your work. You're doing, you're doing great work in liberating the liberal arts. So it's good, to be, it's good to be with you in that. All right. Thank you. Very good. Bye-bye.